You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. likely um, 
journalistic crusader for justice. You not, are, not at all. You're from Texas? I'm from East Texas, which is either the end of the South or the beginning of the South, I'm not sure. <laughs> well, that's where a lot of folks left and went to California, I think. Right? Yeah, I think so, probably. But um, you, I heard you say somewhere that you, when you moved to Mississippi, you learned the difference between the South and the Deep South. Yeah, I did. I did. Well, I mean, I'm trying to be up on Mississippi too bad, but I felt like I moved to a, a different country, you know what I mean? You know, I really did. Uh, and I, I just moved over from Arkansas. I didn't move very far uh, geographically. Uh, but I was just kind of taken back when I first moved to Mississippi that, that I found the difference. Um, this was 86 when I first moved there, and they didn't really kind of brought that polite conversation, you know, in the circles that I ran in and growing up. I mean, certainly heard it plenty, you know, I'm not saying that, but it just had dropped out of what I would call polite conversation. And you heard it more easily? Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, and like from judges and people like that. Ooh, those kind of people. Yeah, you know, I was going like, oh. You know, it would be like someone African American happened to walk out of the room and was nothing but white people. The N word came out, and I'm like, really? You know, so that was my beginning of my introduction to Mississippi, which I wasn't really ready for. Well, uh, Baltimore is the South, and some people kind of forget that sometimes. It's not the deep South, but it is right. the it South. Is. Uh, I spent a little time in Mississippi, and I actually got to meet Bill Miner when I was Yeah, there. Bill was one of my mentors. A legendary journalist there who was credited with. Um, um, I guess unlocking a lot of the secrets of the South during the Civil Rights era. Yes. Yeah. So, um, how is it that until you got to Mississippi, you were 26, I believe, when you, when you got to Jackson? I got to Jackson okay. in, in 1986. So, how is it that you had gotten to be 26 years old and you really did not know these stories of the Civil Rights era? How did I know them? Well, they didn't teach in school, for starters. <laughs> I mean, and, and my parents were involved in it, you know, and so it was the, I, you know, I was in my little white red world, and, you know, all these things were happening. Really, the first thing that happened in the civil rights movement kind of intruded into my little childhood was I remember when Martin King was assassinated. 68, yeah. I used to read Black Magazine, believe it or not, and my mom made me read magazines. So that was the thing I remember. I remember that. Mm -hmm. it, it sort of made me think when I read that that um, black people growing up knew something about the contours oh, yeah. of the civil rights struggle. You would. But, but now I'm finding that even young people, students that I have at Morgan, for example, right. don't necessarily know the stories. You know? Okay. So Americans are good at either forgetting or never knowing. Uh, our history. So, how are you finding it in trying to tell these stories now? Well, yeah, I just wanted to tell these stories. You know, I think too often the civil rights movement gets reduced down to, you know, Rosa Parks sat down, Martin Luther King stood up, and African Americans got their rights. You know, <laughs> that's kind of what we do. That reminds me of a story. Uh, I met Rosa Parks once in the eighties. Right. Uh, in New York, and she said that around that time, because by then we had Martin Luther King weekend, a week, 
uh, in January. So from mid-January to the end of February, she was in great demand as a speaker. And she said that because some little children had never actually heard black history until that time they would see her, they would ask her about slavery and was she a good friend of Harriet Tubman and all of those things because for them it's all smushed together in, in the space of a, of a few days. So you were in uh, Mississippi at the Clarion Ledger and your beat wasn't civil rights or anything. No, I was a court. I was covering courts at the time. Yeah. So you go to see this movie. Yeah, I got a sign to go to Yeah, which is not even a movie that I'm still aware of that. So. Well, I'm going to ask you about that in a minute. But, but tell us about how going to see the screening of Mississippi Burning uh, sort of changed the course of your career. I changed the course of my life. Well, I happened to see it with two FBI agents who investigated the case, and Bill Hine. Journalists to cover it all. Yeah. So you're there, you see this film, you didn't really know this story. You knew nothing about it. You talked to these FBI agents who, yeah. who were given running commentary during the film, if I understand. Yeah, that's right. right. He was like, they didn't get that right. He was commenting, he was like, a running commentary to film ran. He was like, nah, that's not right. He didn't say, yeah, that's right. But then someone mentioned to you that most of these guys got away. Yeah, 20, more than 20 clans involved, killing these three young men, James Cheney, Andrew, and and nobody ever been prosecuted for murder. And that was something I just couldn't wrap my head around. You know, we got, you know, more than 20 people involved in a triple murder, and nobody ever tried for murder. That, that, that's what I couldn't comprehend, and I, I still, you know, to this day, I can't. So I'm curious, um, <coughs> other people at the Australian Ledger at the time, did they have the same reaction you did, or were they like, well, where were you? Why are you just figuring this out? Well, yeah, I, I had the advantage in the sense of being a bit of an outsider. You know, like I was a bit of an outsider, so it was outside of my knowledge or culture, or whatever you want to call it. And then, but I was still stuck, you know. And so I, I, I kind of had the best of both worlds in the sense of, some in the sense of I could go talk to this place. Yeah, I, and then we may get to that later. <laughs> yes, I've spoken to some classmen before too. But I mean, we had different kinds of conversations. <laughs> so, when you decided then, I'm going to, this is what journalists do, you, you get this itch, and you say, I've got to go and do something with that, right? So you decide you want to do something. How did you How did you start? You're the new well, it, it, it was because of work, where it's kind of distinctive by that point, it's like, well, but evidence exists, uh, you know, I'm sort of trying to track down things, the evidence still exists, the transcript, all those things that I realized were important in that case, I'm sort of trying to track them down. So you started with the Medgar Evers case? Well, the sort of Mississippi Burning case. You did start with that. Oh, to then, get to the commission. The well, yeah, and that led me to the Sovereignty Commission, and then the Sovereignty Commission led me to the Medgar so let's let's slow that one down a little bit. Sorry about that. Um, Mississippi had what you referred to as the segregationist spy agency, agency yeah. called Sovereign the yeah. Mississippi Sovereignty. Explain what that was. It was exactly that. It was a spy agency run by the governor, um, you know, and basically it was a uh, kind of the equivalent of a white citizens council, only it's a state agency. And all the top state leaders run, and they had two arms, kind of a propaganda arm 
and then they have a spy arm. The propaganda arm is six figures white black like the world to talk about how wonderful segregation was in Mississippi. And and then the, the spy arm was that infiltrated civil rights groups and, and smeared uh, civil rights activists. And we have some here tonight, people that were moved in it. And uh, maybe your parents were moved in it. But anyway, it is to begin to try to run that in Mississippi to discredit them, et cetera, et cetera. They were sort of like what Cohen Tell Pro was. Yeah, like they were. They were. Um, That's a very accurate term. Yes. So, um, what was what struck me was not only that the governor and all those guys were part of this commission, but they were able to get. Um, Black folks to cooperate with the commission. You mentioned they, an editor of the black newspaper. Yeah, they paid them. And why would they go along with this? <laughs> anyway, I don't know. So, maybe they didn't need the money. I mean, there was actually a guy, there was actually a guy that I read about uh, when we eventually got all the Sovereign Commission papers, B.L. Uh, Fell, who was actually uh, volunteered his services to the commission. But of course, he got paid. And they got upset when they stopped paying him. So Did he started, ever confess and, and No, we didn't stand and kind of defend him and all that kind of stuff. It was very interesting. Well, even more interesting. He got caught. At some point they figured out the that you know, the civil rights community here. He, 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 you're not really civil rights, you're fine. Okay, and they kicked him out. So even more interesting, I suppose, is the newspaper that you joined yeah. was caught up in all this too. Explain that. Yeah, the Clinton Ledger, where I worked for 30 years, 37 years, um, was involved in exactly that, involved in trying to defeat the civil rights movement. It was owned by veterans, and it was absolutely one of the most racist newspapers in America. Um, and then, believe me, there were some Mississippi papers that were got pretty close competitors for that. <laughs> So they weren't alone in that, uh, but it was really horribly racist. I mean, I didn't know that in the joint paper. You did not know that? No, no. It was when I started in the Simon Commission records, that would be at least the Simon Commission records, 24 pages. And when I got those, I started reading, and I started suddenly reading about like, where I work. And I'm like, oh my gosh. Because <laughs> they were like getting, they were getting reports directly from the commission. They were running, they and their sister paper, the Jackson Daily News were running stories that the commission wrote and they just published for a Wow. Or they got the black newspaper in town to run the story and then they picked it up to make it a little more legitimate. Because they were just taking what the black people were already saying. Yeah. Uh, what's some examples of some of those kind of well, stories? Well, there, there was a story, a random Jackson advocate. Uh, yes, the black newspaper. Yeah, the black newspaper still exists in Mississippi. I'm not going to beat it up now. I'm talking about where I've been. There's a guy named Mercy Green, the editor, and they were getting paid money. Um, and so he basically ran verbatim the story that the sovereignty commissioner wrote. They were trying to discredit Martin Luther King to link him to communism. You know, that was the big thing back then. And so uh, they wrote a story, they gave it to Percy Green. He published it. This is all planned out. It's all detailed in the uh, commission papers. They planted the story in the Jackson Advocate. The Jackson Advocate ran it. The Clary Lander picked it up. MLK linked Reds, you know, 
moves with a good example, yeah. and so that's the way that they yeah. got when that in advance to run that way. What was King's uh, presence in Mississippi around that time? And then we didn't have as many presence in Mississippi. You know, CLC was not that strong in Mississippi. He was in Greenwood for a little bit after we go. Later on, SCLC kind of they were part of Freedom Summer and part of what they call Cove, but they were not very strong, and they kind of got a little stronger a little bit later on. But still, the commission wanted to discredit him. Oh, yeah, you know, he didn't discredit him at all. So by the time you decided to sink your teeth into this this area, um, a lot of people were dead. Yep. Other people were saying that's the past. Move yeah, on. Yeah. We still hear a lot of that, by the way. Yeah. Um, what made you decide to pursue this despite that? Well, I mean, I just didn't think it was, you know, I think what made these cases like these killings so bad was not just that these guys got away with murder, it was the fact that everybody knew these guys were getting away with murder. And I think that's what made it so terrible. So were you the crusader uh, at that point, or you just a curious reporter? Well, I think, you know, as a reporter, you're always driven to the, by the next story. And that's kind of what led me. And then at a certain point, you know, you're, uh, cases, you know, came to be reopened and, and prosecuted, and then once one was done, you kind of went, you know, I was already working on some other cases, going, well, what about this other case? So, you know, I had to kind of, you know, how did you con- How did you convince the editors that this was an area worth pursuing? And it wasn't, I, don't I, guess know, I don't know that I convinced all of them. <laughs> I had, yeah, one, I had one, one editor that I was not particularly thrilled with this. Yeah, that, that came through a couple of times. But at what point, let me back up a bit. Sure. When did the Crown Ledger change? It changed in the 70s. What was uh, happening then? Ray Betterman, who now runs the New York Review of Books, uh, basically took over the paper and began to make it professional. So it was not only just a racist paper, but it was like this bad, you know, on top of that, bad newspaper. Um, and so he tried to make it more professional, obviously to get rid of racism and all that kind of stuff, and make it more professional. And he did, and they won't be surprised that they sold out that at some point in 1982 to Gannett, and then, but that project in 82 is the one that won the Declaring Measure of Feudal Service for education reform. So, in Mississippi, we need education reform. Yeah, we need it. We still need it. So, so uh, tell us what it was like then to pitch this, the first stories to the editors. What kind of response did you get overall? Well, they, they, they didn't seem to mind very much, you know, but when I came in with the Sovereignty Commission reports, and I was talking to people earlier about this today, you know, we had 2,400 pages. And I wanted to, like, take six months and do it right. And uh, unfortunately, the person in charge didn't have that mindset. Like three weeks or something? Yeah, three weeks. I had, we had three weeks to do this. So think of this as like... By the way, we were reading Sovereignty Commission papers uh, on Christmas Day. Most of them were written in my family. <laughs> wow. So this is like a Pentagon papers. I don't know. That's the way I mean. Three weeks to do the Pentagon papers. Yeah, yeah. this is kind of the way I saw it. I so mean, one of the editors called my Pentagon papers. Were, were the editors just 
not that interested, or were they feeling the pressure? Was there some I don't kind think of he pressure? was getting a lot of hate calls. I don't think he was getting, I mean, I was getting, but I'm not sure he was getting, because, you know, he's the one kind of got those kind of calls. Speaking of the hate calls and all that, um, how did your family deal with, you were doing this because you're like, this is a hot story. Yeah, uh, what impact was this having on your family? Uh, my wife at the time was not very happy about it. And I, that kind of comes through. Uh, in fact, she was, in her, in her defense, her, in her defense, she was eight months pregnant when I went to an energy environmental back with the guy who killed Edgar Evers. So, and then she also said, before I walked out the door, if you go, I'll never forgive you. That's what she said, exactly. And being the journalist that you were. I said, I'll see you later. <laughs> and I don't mean it fits to her to say that. But I, I, in my mind, you know, I thought about Negro, I thought about her was I knew that story, and how the chief was feared for obviously for his sake, for good reason. And I don't know, I, I, I think we either live it, I, I tell people this, and it's true, is it led to an unexpected gift and these threats and visiting the planet and all that kind of stuff, led to this unexpected gift, and that is the gift of living fearlessly. Because living fearlessly is not about living without fear. Living fearlessly is about living beyond fear. It's about living for something greater than ourselves. And that's what you see with you know, Edgar Evers and these others who have all, people that were even here that, that were all civil rights students. Why did you do it? I mean, you, I mean, the people who came south knew they might be killed. Yeah. Or even a little bit of people that were killed in the civil rights movement. So it wasn't like there wasn't any danger attached to it. And I just thought it was important. Well, at what point did you begin to feel that fearlessness? I don't know. I think I was also young and stupid. I think I was going to ask if that was a factor. Yeah, I was just young and fearless. You didn't know what you were getting into initially. I just I remember a where you said something about you're going to look at one of the old cases. Maybe it was the Medgar um, Evers, but uh, you said most of the people were dead or whatever, so you didn't have anything to worry about. And somebody said, Yeah, I said it was in the media, y'all were dead. So I said, Oh, yeah, most of the people were dead. And he said, Oh, yeah, you do have to worry about so. <laughs> There was a lot still going on there. Um, before we start looking at all the, the cases you featured in the book, I remember at one point one of the editors wanted to take you off this beat, if you want yeah, to call it Yeah, I got to see John Johnson. Right, that editor. Uh, is that editor still around? He's not alive anymore. Okay, so he, I wonder what he's had to say about what you yeah, said. I, I, yeah, I don't know where the same thing from the line. So, but why did he really want to take you off the beat? He said something that you were too close to? He felt like I was too close what to the story. Mean? I don't know, what does that mean? I mean, I wasn't... He, he felt, felt like, like I, I, I guess I wasn't being fair on that story, but I was being fair to the clan? That was what was so good about some of the stories is that often if you let people say what they have in exactly. mind, you don't have to edit or anything, just let them talk and I know. they make all the points. Exactly. Well, well that I was my approach. Part of what we're talking about is the role of journalists in all of this and social justice crusades and all of that. I wonder at some point did you think of yourself in that mode as opposed to just being the journalist doing a good story? I don't know, I was an investigative reporter. Just, uh, in, my, in my mind, I have a friend of mine who's also an investigative reporter, and he has a button that says, I just catch him, I don't cry. I like that. 
And it's so the best way I think about it. I catch them and I don't cry out. You know, and, and that's what we do. I mean, I think we good investigative reporters in our plan around the country, not enough, but we do have plenty, uh, you know, around. And that's what they do too. I mean, you, you just expose, you, you basically, what I did at many points in the attorney was you basically embarrass public officials into doing the right thing. And sometimes you have to do that. And you do that through meticulous documentation of... Where they can't ignore it anymore. Mm -hmm. okay. Well, um, at times in the book, it seems that you were uh, an arm of the prosecution as well as the person who was sort of forcing them to go forward because you found yeah. documents that they couldn't find, treasure yeah. in yeah. the McGrath's case, or you found witnesses that oh, they yeah, claimed sure. you couldn't find. Yeah. So how did you see your role working with the prosecution team? I didn't, I, didn't, I, I mean, I never saw myself as an extension of the prosecution team. I, I knew there were times where they really liked me, like I found evidence, and then there were times where they hated my guts because I would expose, well, like with the gun. I mean, you know, I found that they had a gun, even though they said, the gun in the Metro 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 case, even though they said publicly they didn't know where a gun was. So that was strange. That was strange. It was somebody's father-in-law had in the closet. That was not the gun. Well, the prosecutor in the case had, well, the prosecutor in the case, this is something I'm making up, the prosecutor in the case found the murder weapon in his father-in-law's closet. This is years after the first trial. Yeah, the first trial was in 64. And so this is now 1990. So it's like a souvenir? Yeah. And so, you know, we're getting rid of all the evidence, you know, hey, anybody want this gun? Kill me or whatever it is. They said, I don't know what they said. And he goes, yeah, I'll take it. And so he did. But because he didn't get it, they had it for the trial. So it's crazy. And But that's the kind of stuff that happened that was just kind of wild. And they, they said publicly that the DA had said that they had come. And then that whole side of journalism story on that, and I think it's a little wild of a story, I know about how we found out they actually had the gun. Well, tell us about that one. We're going we're to go in chronological order. So why don't we do this one now? So it, it sort of says a lot about how. Journalism? Yeah. Well, I mean, we got a call. I mean, so 2020, Primetime Live aired the story and quoted. Ed Peters, the district attorney, is saying that, oh, we don't know where the gun is. And so I got a phone call like the next day or so, and the guy said, I, I know where the gun is. This is an anonymous call? Anonymous call. But he knew where the gun was, and was willing to meet with us. But he lived in Signal Mountain, Tennessee. Well, Signal Mountain, Tennessee was where Byron Electric lived. And I just been to this fire deal back with an interview him a month or two earlier than that. And uh, yeah, this would have been June. June was when that aired. So anyway, um, so we, anyway, I, you know, my, my wife at the time, my family was nuts. I mean, I was going to go up to Signal Mountain, Tennessee again, you know. And, and uh, so we went with another reporter to try to save. And it went in his car in my mind, and, 
Not a cloak and dagger kind of. It was bizarre. It was bizarre. You know, we and this guy was a cop, and we like followed him. Uh, it was beyond strange. This was back before cell phones, but you had pagers. So we had a pager. The guy had a pager and came, and you got a payphone still. Anyway, we followed this guy and took us to the remote road, and then kind so of So you're thinking us. that this could be some kind of setup? Yeah. I mean, we don't know. I mean, we're just all of a sudden he like pulls back around, blocks our way, and we're going, "What the heck?" And then he starts searching us when we get out of the car, and you know, we didn't know what was going on. And then he proceeds to tell us the district attorney has a gun, and we're just like, "Oh, we drove all the way for this." We were thinking it's all a lie, you know. But we knew we needed to check that, so we got back and so found out it was true. How did you find out it was true when you got back? That's wild. Uh, so Edward uh, basically worked City Hall. He was City Hall duty reporter. And he ran into the police chief. And he asked him, well, what are you doing this weekend? He said, well, we were out looking for the gun that killed Baker Evers. He goes, do you know whatever happened to that? He goes, oh, yeah, you know. He said, a judge, uh, yeah, the judge for the last name more got that. And then he ends up going later that day, the same city hall reporter, and runs into the city attorney, Matthew Moore. And it dawns on him, hey, we should add a judge. <laughs> and he confronts him about the gun. He said, yeah, the prosecutor, Bobby Wallace, the prosecutor, yeah, Bobby came and got that gun. So that's how we found out. And then I and then, we, and then we confronted Bobby. I mean, it has to go to Mississippi, and they have it in the, in the movie. It's like me making a phone call. But I, I never understood this, because real life was far more dramatic than a phone call. We actually confronted him on a little league field <laughs> after he got done with his game. Our practice, I love what he had in practice. And he gets done, and we go, uh, yeah, you know, we, we confronted him about the gun, and he's like, oh, you know, you know I, well, if we did have the gun, we wouldn't want Byron to go back with the note, we had the gun, go back with the nose, because that's what the guy said when he told us. Um, he said that was the one that told him that, that the district attorney had the gun. This is a very convoluted Yeah, it's all real wild. Uh, yeah, pretty good. Yeah, of Klansmen and some names I never heard of, but I'll ask yeah. you about. So let's take them in the order in the book. I think I have it. Megra Evers first. Right, this first case. Right, So um, the Megra Evers was killed in 1963. Correct. There was a trial of sorts in 64. There were two trials in 64, both individual Okay, so now. 60, uh, 30 years later. He was so now there's, there's an opportunity to reopen this case. Yep. What was. What was your approach uh, first? Was it to dig around in the records or to contact Bernie um, Evers and the family to see what they knew or what they thought about this? Well, I contacted her after I did the Sodomy Commission story, just to see. I just kind of did a straight story about what the Sodomy Commission records showed, and then I did another story. What her reaction to this? this do you feel like this means case should be reopened? Mm -hmm. And she did feel like it needed to be reopened. Uh, then our newspaper ran an editorial saying the case would be reopened. And by the end of that month, the district attorney reopened the case. So this ends with a conviction, but tell us about Byron. 
Yeah, yeah that's that's the thing thing Absolutely, the most racist person I've ever seen. He was the one who was ultimately convicted in this. Yeah. He was, you know, inward this, inward that. Um, and then it started in all the other non white races. Well, before he agreed to see you, you had to pass a test. I did. Tell us what the questions were on the test. Yeah, where, where did you grow up? Were your parents' names? Where did you go to school? Um, where did you go to church? He wanted yeah. to make sure you were a good white Christian. Good white Christian. I had all the lost credentials, and I look like I'm an albino, so I passed. <laughs> so he let you come to he his place in Signal Mountain? He let me come talk to him. We spent about six hours talking. What did you know about him as you were going in? Your wife did not want you to do this. No. So what did you know about whether he posed danger or he oh, was yeah, well, I, mean, I, I pretty much felt like he killed me or whatever, and also planted a bomb trying to blow up a Jewish leader in the wall. But he was an old man, then. Do you still feel that he had 69 years old? Well, like, you know, like some, some fellow mortar put him on the way. So maybe he was 69 years old, but he can still pull the trigger. He still has a, he still got a, he can still pull the trigger, you know, so, true. So you go there and interview him, and what was the intent to get him to confess? No. I, I was more interested in, I, I, I didn't feel like he confessed. I was more like interested in what kind of a man raises. Could you figure that out? <laughs> well, I, I think I figured that part. I mean, I don't know that complete answer. But he literally joined everything. Like he joined the, you know, Confederate veterans, you know, all, all those like organizations. Kwasla, and I'm getting with Kwasla, but I'm just saying he joined everything. Mm -hmm. And the White Citizens Council was very active in, and then he joined uh, the Klan. It's he didn't admit that part, but I don't know it's true. Was it him who was a member of this Christian identity? Christian identity. Explain how Christ yeah, and Christianity got tied up in here. Oh, wow. So the Christian identity is this horrible like racist religion, and I'll tell it bluntly real quickly. Um, he believed that, um, and the Christian identity believes, that Adam and Eve were white people, that all of the uh, non-white races were created on the sixth day, that the animals and therefore had no souls, and that Eve had sex with the serpent Satan, and that's where the Jews come from. It's horribly racist, but I'm just, that's, that's a pretty quick, brutal summary of it. Yeah. Mm. So that case then ends with a conviction. Um, well, let me tell one more story about okay. it. Uh, so we talked about six hours, we got done, and it, it was dark now, and I thought it was probably a pretty good time to go. And uh, so this is like walking out to the car, and I'm like, really? That's okay. I'm thinking I'm on my way. So he walks me out the car and he gets me out and says, You're out of positive things about white Caucasian Christians, God will bless you. You're out of negative things about white Caucasian Christians, God will punish you. If God does not punish you directly, several individuals will do it for him. And so his wife had been making a sandwich. I think you guys will do it with a sandwich. <laughs> I was giving a signal, it's almost time to wind up our oh, okay, the Q&A, but I want to ask you about the last case in the book. Yeah, this is back to that. But I want to ask you about calling it that. I know there was the FBI code, but people, most people don't know any history or anything, so they only think of it as the movie. 
True. So it's so it's a movie that made the FBI heroic yeah, and minimized the role of the actors. So by calling it the Mississippi burning cases, it it no, that's my no, that's what they call it. Yeah, well, but next time when you edit that book, I'll take it out on that. Yeah, fair, fair enough. That still reminds us of who was getting the credit. No, I mean, I, I, you know, want to make clear that the absolutely. We're going to take some questions in a couple of minutes, but let me uh, ask. Um, you said, I think, in the at the end of the book, you acknowledge that there are a lot more cases yeah. that have not yet been solved. Yeah. Um, I'm guessing they probably won't be solved because the people who were alive when you started this are now dead. Yeah. Most of those who went to prison dead. are dead. And were, yeah, yeah, ones I wrote about dead. So, <coughs> will we ever get any definitive sense of justice or is this something we just have to accept? That well, I wish we could, you know. I, I you know, in, in retrospect, I wish the whole crew you know, would come in and began working on these cases, you know what I mean, when I started working on them. If you started, well, it wouldn't work that way, but if at that time we had such things as crowdsourcing and such, that would have been amazing. Yeah, it would have been, been a lot easier if, if we had that. You know, if we had social media when I did it originally, we would have potential for that. Or more courageous journalists using the old-fashioned shoe leather method. Yeah, that's what I did. It was all free internet, pretty much, most of them. It was not an easy beat. Uh, shall we start with questions? And as you raise your hands, we have someone with a microphone who will come around here. Better take <laughs> We have up front. Hi, thank you very much. Two questions. Uh, I know uh, Michael Schwerner uh, was up here trying to integrate whatever parts of the carousel. I'm just, that was 63, I guess. Right. I just say I always thought of an award and an 
all that different men, you know. So yeah, you know we're we're, we're kind of loath to give our opinions on things, so, you know. But something like Harvard, but I try to you know try to go to the cities. Uh, yeah, I mean, you guys know. I'm sure you have an opinion. I'm sure a lot of you have an opinion on that. I mean, that's the You would think that it, it is the I will say this that award is the highest civilian award, the highest award a civilian can receive in this country. But we've seen that the current president has a 10 year, that's the mild way to put it, when it comes to racial sensitivity. Absolutely. Uh, and that was, that was evident in, in the awarding of that medal. I do. Uh, Say it's a tremendous honor for me as a civil rights and peace veteran to to uh, listen to you. I I bemoan the servile nature of say the White House press corps or the press in Baltimore. Uh, failure to connect the dots. Trump inspires a person to kill how many people in Baltimore, Texas, or his his comments about. Guns in Virginia, and they recently turned down a assault weapons ban. I mean, the press does not confront. And then you've got Fox News as a servile uh, parrot. Uh, what's the word for, for this right wing? Mm -hmm. your, your thoughts about all right and right wing groups now flourishing? Well, they are. They are flourishing. They're in the and white nationalism and, and white supremacy. There's no question for that. And you're, you're right. I mean, you, you know, five years ago, um, you probably you know, may have known this. I mean, you know what happened. You don't know what happened that led to this. So you know about Bill and Ruth and what he did five years ago. And walked in the church in Charleston and, and killed those nine beautiful people and plus a few others. But what he had been doing prior to that, that was he got on. The, um, the Council of Conservative Citizens website, which is the direct descendant of the White Citizens Council in Mississippi. And he read stuff on there, and it was like typical racist crap. It's like, you know, oh, look at this horrible black on white crime. No one's reporting about it, you know. And, which is not true, and it is not being recorded on. I mean, it's, it's total exaggeration. And, and so, but they were saying, I give all these examples. And, and so he sees this, and then that prompts him to go to church. So, what I'm trying to say is that hate's going to really pop away. And, and so, we're still dealing with that. And, you know, a couple years ago, the synagogue in Pittsburgh, where the, the guy was the Jews, essentially, walked in and killed 11. Eleven people in the congregation there. Um, so, so people are not as um, um, polite anymore about hiding yeah. their true feelings when it comes to yeah. racism and anti-Semitism. Well, they've been emboldened. Mm -hmm. You know, they feel like they can be more open about it. I think there's some questions. Um, people question whether there's a future for journalism. <laughs> I, I think there's still lots I of for us to explore. A bit um, but you're finding that it's necessary to go the nonprofit route in order to even be able to sustain the kind of journalism you're doing. Correct. Can you explain that? 
Well, I mean, it's, it's understanding where where we are in Mississippi exactly across the country. I assume, you know, I'm not like I don't pick on the Baltimore Sun, but you probably those of you who remember the paper from 20 or 30 years ago remember when it was like really thick, right? And you used to all Sunday afternoon reading the paper, you know. And uh, so newsrooms are shrinking, and certainly in Mississippi they're basically vanishing. And so the first thing you go when newspapers and other media outlets start losing money is investigative reporting. And so Mississippi needs more investigative reporting, not less. And that's why we started the nonprofit. You know, it's a, it's a model that, at least so far, appears to be working. So we, that's why we decided to do it. And we literally give our content away to um, newspapers all across Mississippi. So our stories, we've been writing about prisons in Mississippi for the past year. In fact, our stories kind of warned us it was going to happen. You may have heard the national news about all the deaths in all the Mississippi prisons. We wrote about the problems and state officials wouldn't do anything. And we basically said prisons were going to blow up, and they did. So our enforcement is critical. Yeah. Hi, I'll just, just to sort of take up uh, the, uh, <coughs> the journalism question a bit, uh, since it's our shared profession. The, um, you know, a lot of people criticize uh, journalists today for not confronting, said Trump, you know, every time he lies. So I was curious, in your interviewing with somebody like Beckwith or various other people, I mean, did, did you feel that you had to confront their racism and tell them, I mean, how did you sort of approach that? Well, I think you, you report it, just like you mentioned earlier. I mean, you, you sit there and you, you, our job is not to sit there and go, hey, wait a minute, you're a racist. <laughs> you're being racist, you know. It's more you catalog it, you, you confront it in a sense in French. I mean, you, you tell what they're actually saying and, let people react to it, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I think that's, that's how you do it. That's how you address it. I mean, there's not, I don't know if there's a perfect answer for how you address all the situations. It sort of depends, too, on whether you see yourself as the advocacy journalist. And also, if you define yourself that way, you're probably going to have fewer opportunities to confront the racist, if that's what it, it is. So I've been able to bite my tongue and talk to some clients and people in Georgia. Uh, and um, a guy who was trying to, it was actually interesting, we were doing jury selection in a, a death penalty case in Georgia, and we were trying to glean information about the prospective jurors. So we go into a little general store in southwest Georgia. The other law students who were part of our group were shocked when I started speaking the way I can talk, because I'm from Georgia originally. So I'm sitting now talking to this old racist guy about cotton, and corn and all this stuff to get him to start talking about the people on the list. And he was making a distinction between those who referred to black people as niggers and those who referred to them as niggers. The niggers types were the liberals. So we had to be able to sit there and go through all of this in order to get the information we needed in that case. If I'm a reporter, I'm doing that just to kind of discern where is he coming from and how does this fit into the story. So we have to play, you have to put on the mask sometimes in order to get that information. Then you go and shower and purge yourself of all kinds of things. I guess one other thing, there was another movie made in January of 
Pennsylvania Department for TV called Murder in Mississippi. Are you, are you familiar with that? Yeah, yes, I saw it. It's been a while. I once asked Taylor Branch about it. He said it was a movie that Mississippi Burning should have been. He thought it was much better. I don't know if you have Yeah, it was more about the civil rights activists, you know, about changing the trend. That and really the relationship with, you know, uh, changing the trend. That was a big criticism about Mississippi Burning. Well, yeah, yeah. Just, yeah. they yeah. killed her off the bat, and the activists are all depicted. And I don't mean it's, I'm not trying to criticize, I'm not what the movie depicts them all as cowards, you yeah. know what I mean? And the cowering, and. And, um, and just as victims, too. So yeah, exactly. Just as victims. They weren't agents at all. Exactly. Mm -hmm. um, I'm curious about the Mississippi Burning what the political situation is like in Jackson now. I know the, the problems are very similar to what we have here in Baltimore. Um, yeah. Could you just say a little bit about that? What your impressions are? Well, you just want to call it strictly in Jackson? Yeah. Well, it's the shrinking The crime, the streets, the flood. <laughs> yeah, we, we, it's kind of been all sorts of things. Yeah, it's, you know, you had white flight and then you had middle class flight, middle class white flight, and, and uh, from the city, and, and it's unfortunate because the, uh, you know, the tax, the tax base has fallen, the you know, tax dollars have fallen, the city is shrinking, the, the roads now are, you know, need to repair, you know, to be honest. I'm just kind of describing it, but, but, but the, the mayor now is, that's what I always know about what's Malumba is, is the, son of the son of Malumba. Malumba, the son of Malumba. Um, who who kind of was a real fascinating guy. I really feel top man. Uh, but he was involved in, in the civil rights movement and then became mayor and and, uh, and really felt a lot of promise and kind of died within a few months, I guess. Taking off. Chuck senior. Senior. And so uh, now that now his son's coming in, he's he's kind of inherited, you know, a pretty bad situation from previous parents. So he's trying to turn things around. So we'll see. I remember a time in uh, the early to mid '80s when Mississippi was being hailed as a state with the uh, largest number of black elected officials. Well, we did have to they had a, a black member of the Supreme Court, we did. and there were all these things <coughs> on so it looked like Mississippi was moving in some positive way. Has anything changed in that? Well, well I think, you know, it seems like everything in race, including Mississippi, is <coughs> a step or two forward and then a step or two back, you know. And I think it's true in America, too, that we seem to be that way. And I think the thing is, uh, and I think the thing too about Mississippi, I just want to say, is if we're not in Mississippi, is it's so easy, I think, to wag our fingers at Mississippi and say how terrible they are, uh, instead of seeing Mississippi as a mirror. You know, but I think Mississippi is kind of the best of America and the worst of America, if that makes any sense. And, and those of you who got that, I think some people from Mississippi. Anybody from Mississippi in the room? Yeah, okay. Oh, you're from Mississippi. Yeah. Mississippi, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so, I, I, anyway, we are the best we are. We're, I think we're a mirror of America, and so we are the best in our world. And did you 
Nina Simone, a wonderful song. What a song. We have time for a few more questions. Okay. Uh, I feel as if I'm living in a weird place here. Uh, on the light, I don't have a car, so I'm on the light rail, the bus, and the subway. And I hear the N word every day, you know, just from everybody right. who's there. Little tiny children. Uh, God, what, whatever. Women, teenagers, young kids. Uh, all day, every day. I've lived for 23 years, and that's what uh, I'm here. Uh, but I was a person who joined SNCC in the 1960s and, you know, was heartbroken when Julian Bond died. Yeah. Uh, but my question for the two of you is this. One of the most brilliant women that I ever heard speak was Shirley Chisholm. And she was on the Phil Donahue show. Yeah. And he asked her the question, what have you experienced as a human being, being in politics, is racism that, that you would have experienced, or is gender bias the worst? She said, by and far, gender bias is the worst. It's much worse than any racism. And she gave chapter and verse of why that took place. What do you think of what Shirley Chisholm said? Wow. I don't know. I mean, I, 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 I think the gender bias is historical. I mean, I think that the you know, I mean, it's kind of been, and in this country, historically, it's been white male, you know what I mean, in, in, in general. And so it's been a source of power. And then landowners originally, and then, and then beyond that. And, and so it's historical. I mean, I don't So uh, it's a perspective, and, uh, and one of the things you're talking about, yeah, well, a lot of people she don't said understand this. The men in the Carolina caucuses kept her from running for the presidency. I'm sorry? The men, men the black men in the Carolina caucuses, kept her from running for the oh, presidency. And, and, and black men do a lot of things like that too. I'm, I'm not saying that it's not, but that was her experience. Others have different experiences as to which one has been the more prominent factor in their development. <laughs> and it's all valid. It's not, it doesn't make the one, one less valid. You know, I think they're both valid. Yeah. So in these cases where the prime suspect is passed, everybody's dead, do you feel like it's worthwhile still to work to get to the truth? I ask because my, excuse me, my parents live in Bogalissa, Louisiana. Oh, years. yeah. Um, that was actually, a tough place. Yeah, you know, you know who Ray McAvee is. Uh, yeah, I think his wife came to my wedding. Oh, One wow. of our family friends of ours. And the, the mythology is still that uh, they were just trying to railroad him. And, oh, and coming yeah. here today, I looked up Miss Doris's 
obituary is why. Three of their children, um, let's see, two of them are American judges, one's a pastor. They're still powerful people in the community. Wow. And they're still the mythology okay. that Ray was railroaded. And these people just came in from other out you know, the north the and want to ruin the life. Um, and I just think that the truth, even if these people are dead, would, would help I, I agree. generations to come. Yeah, and I know journalists who've been working on that case, uh, Stan Nelson, who's down at Stan Nielsen? Stan There are two Stan Oh, okay. There's a black filmmaker in Stan Nielsen. This is a, a, a journalist, a white journalist in Louisiana, who's been working on some of these cases too. But I agree. I mean, I think, I think we're just, as you know the truth, the truth can help lead to justice. And if you can't get justice, the truth can help still be the understanding. And I think I'm talking about my book, but I think that's one thing the book hopefully can help do. Is to let people know the truth about. I've met several people who've read the books up on there. You know, the white blacks. I never knew all that happened. Well, I hope that yeah. this will lead to those conversations that we regularly hear that we need to be having and we never exactly. quite get to. Part of it because people don't really want to face yeah, the, the truth about themselves, their families, etc. Uh, but as we close, I want to ask you one. Let me ask one name already. To mention Ray, I should mention who he is. He was the chief suspect in killing of O'Neill Moore, who was the first one of the two first black deputies in uh, in both from both was in that area. So and he was shot, killed, and then uh, his partner was shot. He lost his sight. Was shot down. So anyway, he, he was not, we're not talking, he was not repentant. In fact, he was involved in helping Beckwith trying to get out of, uh, in the, uh, Beckwith get cleared in the uh, marriage, I guess. So. Well, one final question I had. I saw that you did have, you have a screenplay uh, for a movie based on Emmett Till's death. Uh, John Singleton was going to direct, he died, so what's happening? And Taraji P. Henson is a producer and an So what's happening with that? They're trying to find a new director. Kind of simple. That's the way it is. You know, I'm always last to find out. You know, screenwriters, they just, they, they, they get screenplay and say, we'll talk to you later. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's hope they do a, a great job with that movie when it comes out. So. It won't be Mississippi Burning. No, <laughs> This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.